Thessalonians chapter 2 tonight. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring a Bible to you so you can follow along in our study. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, after just three weeks in the city of Thessalonica, was chased out after causing a riot because of the message that he was bringing of Christ's salvation to the city there. And being concerned for the frail state that he left the church in, he sent his right-hand man, a young man by the name of Timothy, back into the city with the intent of, first of all, assessing the situation there that the Christians were facing, also then to strengthen them and establish them in their faith and their walk with the Lord, and then to bring a report back to Paul as to what was going on there back at the city. When Paul left, the situation was bad for the Christians. 200,000 people occupied the city in the time that Paul went, and the Bible tells us that he set the whole city in an uproar because of the message that he brought and the controversy that followed the, you know, the message and the receiving of that message by the Gentiles there. So the situation for the Christians was sour. And Timothy, having being sent by Paul, goes back into the city because Paul thought that perhaps the Christians there were failing a little bit. He suspected that they were stumbled, that they were confused about the affliction that they were facing and the trials that they were undergoing and the difficulty that they were facing. And so he asks Timothy to bring this report. And, you know, when we read the letter, we understand. And, and so Timothy, he comes back and he brings word to Paul and he tells him, contrary, Paul, to what your fears are telling you or what you might be thinking, the church isn't turning away from the Lord, but in fact, they're thriving in spiritual things. There's a revival going on there in the city, and the church is being fruitful there. The Christians individually are bearing fruit. There's faith, hope, and love in their lives personally. And they're also reaching out to the surrounding areas, and the gospel is spreading through that small seed that you planted there in the time that you were with them. However, though they were thriving, though they were bearing fruit spiritually, and though they were believing in the Lord, there was a sense of confusion about the great difficulty that they were facing outwardly. In the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, 12 times the Apostle Paul uses the words affliction, persecution, conflict, tribulation, suffering, contention, and distress. And so you get the idea that Paul was concerned with their, you know, a state because of the situation that they were facing there. And so Paul writes to them, getting the report from Timothy that spiritually things are going well, outwardly not so much. And so Paul writes a letter to them in which he seeks to encourage them in their faith, establish them in the things of God and in the ways of God, and also to explain to them some of what they are experiencing and why. And so, 
in the first chapter, as we looked at last week, Paul gives to them four observations that he made or is making about them that are for them an assurance that they are in fact in the hand of God, that they are in God the Father and in his Son, Jesus Christ. Four observations of assurance that, hey, God is working in your life. It may not seem like it. It may not feel like it. Everyone on the outside might look and say, why are you following the Lord when you're facing all of this adversity and affliction? But Paul would say, you're in. God's working in you. We see the work of the Spirit. And and so he gives them that assurance in chapter 1. Now, as we come into chapter 2 in our study tonight, the Apostle Paul gives to them, essentially, a mathematical equation of the Christian life. Chapter 2 is a mathematical equation of the Christian life. Here's what he's going to tell them in chapter 2. Here's the equation for, for you mathematicians. Any mathematicians in here? This is a simple one. The platform of affliction plus the power of integrity plus the persuasion of love equals a potent and impacting witness to the world. Did you get that? The platform of affliction plus the power of integrity plus the persuasion of love equals a potent and impacting witness to the world. And Paul is going to use his life and his ministry as an example of how suffering affliction, tribulation, trials, trouble, heaviness, distress, coupled with integrity and purity of motive and heart in what you do, along with love that is demonstrated through outward behavior and care for others, turns and works together to be an effective tool in reaching people in the name of Christ. And Paul uses his own ministry as an example of how that all works is out or works out. So he begins in verse one with the first component of this equation, which is the platform of affliction. He says, For yourselves know, or for yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. That word vain there that you'll notice at the end of verse 1, it's a word that means empty or without substance. You may recall hearing that word in the commandment that God gave through Moses that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Same idea. And the word means emptily or without any substance or flippantly or lightly. And Paul is applying that concept to his coming to them, his entrance in among them. He says, our entrance in, our coming to you, it was not in vain. It was not without substance. In other words, even in our very arrival there in the city, there was power in it. Before we ever spoke a word, before there was ever a a Bible study that was taught or anything else, when you just saw us for the first time, there was substance to what you saw. Even our entrance was not in vain. And then he explains in verse 2. He says, for even after that we had suffered before, or after what we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. Now, I shared with you last week that when Paul came to Thessalonica, 
he was coming from the city of Philippi. And in Acts chapter 15, it describes for us what took place there. After a short time of ministry and the beginning of the work there, Paul was arrested, he was bound, and then he was beaten, and he was left in a dungeon with Silas, his cellmate, and basically abandoned there, there in the prison. And, and, and you know, I'm not going to go through and share the story again, but God miraculously delivers Paul from that situation that he's in, and he leaves the city, not right away, but he makes his way out of Philippi, and he travels the 80 miles west to the city of Thessalonica. But he was beaten. Second Corinthians tells us that five times in Paul's ministry, he had received the 39 stripes, the whips from the flagellum. No doubt, one of those five times was while he was at Philippi being examined there about the riot that started. And so when Paul came to Thessalonica, he was wounded. He was probably limping from how they would stretch out the bodies to lock them into the stocks. And, and he, was, he was not impressive by any stretch as he came in their midst. And they noticed when he got there, who is this guy? What's his thing? Why is he here? And, and even in the entering in, there was some substance. It drew the attention of the people. And Paul says, our entrance was not in vain because even after what we had suffered before when we were shamefully entreated at Philippi, listen to what he says. He says, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. He says that here was the power or the substance of our entrance or the beginning of our ministry there in Thessalonica. It's that even after we suffered in Philippi and were met with contention in Thessalonica, we still were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God. That the affliction that we had come from and the affliction that we were coming into did not move us or stop us from proclaiming the message that we had been given from God to deliver to you. We were bold in our God. And what Paul is saying is that one component of the effectiveness of our ministry there in Thessalonica was the fact that we were doing it in affliction. We were persevering through the affliction we were facing. Now, throughout the history of God and his work in the world, Affliction has always been a platform wherein God's people can preach the message of God's goodness and God's grace. It was because of the years of affliction that a young man named Joseph had endured, being thrown into a pit by his brothers and then sold as a slave to Potiphar, and then falsely accused and arrested in Egypt. And for over a decade, Joseph just suffering the affliction, but enduring under that affliction, remaining faithful to God. It was that affliction that earned Joseph the respect of the Egyptians and even the very senators of Pharaoh and of the Pharaoh of himself. The platform for Joseph's respect and effectiveness was the affliction that he had faced. It was the willingness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to endure the furnace of affliction in the name of the Lord that caused King Nebuchadnezzar, that arrogant, powerful king, 
to give glory and praise to the true and the living God, their, their willingness to endure an affliction. It was the appearance of a man who had been digested and then regurgitated by a whale that hobbled onto the shores of Nineveh and preached a message that the people there needed to repent or else the judgment of God would come. And when they saw a man that probably was hairless from the stomach acids of the whale, and perhaps a little bit you know, disheveled as he had just been thrown up on the beach there of Nineveh, the affliction that Jonah had faced opened for him a door of utterance wherein he spoke and the whole city repented and stayed the judgment of God upon it. And now here Paul is saying that it was the affliction that we faced in Philippi and the contention that we endured under while we were there among you that became for us the stage upon which we could stand and declare unto you the word of God, this gospel of our God. Affliction in the life of God's people historically and even in the present day has always been a stage or a platform for God's people to preach. Now, it was true for Paul, and it's true for us, but it isn't affliction alone that opens the door, and thus enters the second part of Paul's equation, the platform of affliction plus the power of integrity. He moves from talking about how he came to them in affliction, but then he says, but I behaved with integrity. Now, integrity is measured by the difference between the appearance of something and the reality of what it is. That's what integrity is. If there's a great difference between the appearance of something and the reality of what it is, then it has no integrity. But if the appearance outwardly is in alignment with what it is invisibly under the surface, then that, that structure or that image or that person or that system, whatever it might be, would be said to have integrity. It's the same thing on the inside as it is on the outside. I remember when I first started working as a carpenter, uh, you know, probably 13 years ago, the very first job uh, that, I, that I was called on to and I was working there, and it was this great big school, and they were adding an addition onto an existing school. And the connection between the old structure and the new structure called for a connection where they would drill these holes that would go all the way through the foundation of the old building. And then they would jam in these steel bars that would then connect to the new structure. And these bars had to go through this three-foot foundation wall. And I remember I was standing there when the inspector came on the job. And all of those iron bars were shoved into those holes. And the inspector said, pull out one of those bars. And, and the contractor, which was my boss at the time, he said, oh, I thought those bars go all the way through. I don't even... Think we could get them out. He says, well, I want to see. I want to see how, that, that they go all the way through. Pull out one of those bars. And so we went down there, and he, he did one of these, where he's pulling on the thing. He's like, ah, these, these things are in there. And so the inspector goes down, and the inspector just, boop, and pulls it out. And it was in there about an inch. And, and, he, and, the, and the contractor, he said, oh, well, well, I guarantee you that all the rest of these, they go straight through the thing. And, and it was a very embarrassing moment for that. Con no integrity. See, the appearance of what it looked like didn't line up with the reality of what was really going on. It's an absence of integrity. 
Now, the Apostle Paul is a preacher. He's an apostle. He's a church planter. And he's going to talk about his motives. He's going to peel back the skin a little bit. He's going to take away the appearance of what he is in his words even and in his dress. And he's going to show us what's in his heart and talk to us about why he's doing what he's doing. Now, often we see things that look impressive on the outside, whether it's a structure or a system of men or a person that we look at and an image that they represent to us. But in time... If we investigate or if we just observe, we notice that that structure or that system or that image that's being put forth by a person doesn't measure up with the way it was portrayed at the beginning. Can you relate to that? Have you ever experienced that? Notice what Paul says as he reveals his motives. He says in verse 3, he says, For our exhortation, that is the word that we brought to you, the word that we preached to you, It was not of, and that word of means from, or and it speaks of the motivation. It was not motivated by, and then he says three things. First of all, deceit. The word deceit in the Greek language means fraudulent or crooked. Now you understand if someone is fraudulent, right? They're a fraud. They're claiming to be something, or they are representing something something selling something but in reality you find that what they are representing or what they are selling turns out to be junk fraudulent he says it was not of deceit it wasn't fraudulent nor of uncleanness uncleanness it speaks of dirty in motivation you ever heard of a dirty politician you know they they come on tv and they have a big bright smile And they have children laughing all around them as they talk to the camera about the great ideas that they have and the positive change that they're going to bring to society, you know. But you come to find out that they're really a dirty politician. They present an image as though they're for the people. But underneath, they're all about themselves or a special entrance. Paul says, that's not us. It wasn't of uncleanness. We weren't dirty. And then number three, nor in guile. The word guile means to disguise or to decoy like laying a bait that you would when you go fishing or something. As though you're promising food, but yet in reality underneath it is a hook and you're trying to grab something. And Paul uses these three words and he says that our word, our message, the ministry that we were called unto was not of deceit, uncleanness nor in guile but rather he says in verse 4 as we were allowed of god to be put in trust with the gospel even so we speak the word allowed there means tested and approved it means ordained and selected and sent by god That it wasn't something where he just took it upon himself or that he thought it would be a good idea or that this was the newest humanitarian effort, but it was the type of thing where God had not only called him into this task, but that Paul had undergone all of the proving, all of the trying, all of the testing that is required in a faithful steward of God's word and that he was then selected by God to this task. And Paul says... This wasn't something that we just wanted to do, but this is a stewardship. 
It's a privilege that's been given to me and to those that are with me to bring to you the most precious substance, the greatest gift that exists in all of the universe. And that was the intent behind my coming to you. This is a calling from God, a privilege and a stewardship. And he says that that is how we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God which trieth the hearts. The gospel that we bring unto you, we deliver it to you exactly as God gave it. What is the gospel of God? The gospel of God is that man, in his natural state, is separated and alienated from God. That every one of us born into this world are born enemies of God. We are at enmity with God. And therefore, we are a slave to the lusts and desires of our flesh and of our mind. We're bound and trapped in those things. And the result of that, the Bible says, the wages of that sin is eternal separation from God. So the natural state of every baby that is born, no matter how cute, how precious, how innocent they look, the natural born position that that baby is in is that they are lost and separated from God. But that God didn't desire that man should perish in that state. And so God himself became a man. It was a plan that was foreknown by God from the foundation of the world. Before the first man was placed in the garden, God already knew that he would do this. That he was going to come into the world as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. That he would be of the seed of Abraham. Of the line of David from the tribe of Judah, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would live a sinless life even though he had been tempted in every point, that then he would suffer and be tortured by the very creation he came to save, that he would then be crucified on a cross wherein the very wrath of God, the very punishment for all of the sins of mankind would be singularly poured out upon that one man as he hung there upon that cross and he would absorb the full penalty of God's wrath as he hung there and he died and was bled out on the cross of Calvary. But that then three days later he rose from the dead and then he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he is returning. He is coming again to take those that believe in him unto himself. He's coming again. God became a man. And that now, anyone, any man that will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, not depending on their own morality, not trusting in their own righteousness, but trusting in God and what he did and the gift that he provided in sending his son, that if they would put their faith in Christ for salvation, and repent of their sins and turn away from that thing that separated them from God and walk in obedience to the word that Christ gives and the command that he gives and to follow his steps and take up the cross daily and live the crucified life that those that would follow and believe on him will be saved. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that is the message that we received of the Lord and it is the message that we give unto you in all of its fullness, in all of the offense that it presents, in all of the stumbling block that it will be to the Jew who keeps the law, in all of the morality that it would be to the Gentile that lives a godless existence. 
We gave it to you exactly as it was delivered to us because we are stewards of the grace of God. We speak not as those that please men, but as those that please God. Now, there are, there was in Paul's day, and there is in our day, many preachers that preach from selfish ambition and with false motivation. Those that do not, like Paul, have the integrity of being able to claim. Now, I got to pause here and just say, this is one of the hardest Bible studies for me to give because, you know, I'm a preacher. And so I'm looking at Paul and what he says and comparing it to myself. And I'm going, oh, Lord, do I really have to teach these things? I'm going to turn red and start sweating because I'm so messed up, you know, and all. But Paul begins to talk about the false motives of those that don't have the kind of integrity that Paul is claiming here. There are some that preach, and the platform or the motive behind their preaching is that they desire to please men. They only say things that are going to make people feel good. In the beginning of verse 5, he says, Neither at any time used we flattering words. Saying things that make people feel good. Not ever talking about sin or talking about repentance or challenging people to change or to look at themselves and see the crookedness of their ways. There's men-pleasing preachers that you can sit in their churches with hands lifted and hearts singing out to God, claiming the name of Christ, but at the same time living in pure and utter rebellion against God and in violation to the things that he says and have no discomfort or conviction of sin at all because you'll never hear sin talked about in those pulpits. They're men-pleasers, Paul would say. The next false motive that he highlights, not just those that speak with flattering words, but then in the second half of verse 5, he says, nor a cloak of covetousness. There are those that preach because they've found that in preaching, they can make people vulnerable to give great offerings. They can use the things of God and they can appeal to the conscience and the desire of people to worship to fleece the flock of God and to make money for themselves or for some other means of personal gain, some other personal motive or selfish agenda that they might be fulfilling in being in the ministry of the Lord. Paul says, not me. There was no cloak of covetousness in what we did. And then the third thing that he mentions there in verse 6, he says, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others. The third false motive that Paul says, this was not my motive, was man worship. People that use the ministry for the sake of building a name for themselves so that their name will be known and heard perhaps nationwide or countrywide or community-wide or maybe even worldwide. That their name would be made known and glorified and spoken well of by all and that's what drives them and motivates them in the ministry is that their name would be magnified they would have the praise of men or that they could use perhaps a church that they pastored a large church as a resume builder so that they can then move on to a greater endeavor and have their name written upon something that was seen as successful in the eyes of men seeking glory from men paul says that wasn't our motive nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others. And then he says this, 
when we could have done any of those things and you never would have known it. That's what he means when he says, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. We were the apostles of Christ. We had a reputation. People knew who we were. When Paul's riot took place in Thessalonica, the word of the magistrate was, these men that have turned the world upside down have come here also. They knew who Paul was. And so he had a reputation, and he could have used that reputation in some way to benefit or make his life easier. And he says, we didn't do that. That wasn't our motivation. We could have done it, but we didn't. It wasn't our motivation. And what he's saying to them is that what you saw in us while we were among you is the same thing as what drove us. Now, if none of these things were what drove Paul and motivated in him his ministry, then what did motivate Paul in his ministry? The third thing, we've talked about the platform of adversity and the power of integrity. Now we see the persuasion of love. What drove Paul? He tells us in verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Now, when your heart is in the right place with the Lord, you automatically become a reflection of the Lord. And because Paul had the integrity of a pure motivation, the love of Christ compels me. I'm a steward of the grace and the gospel of God that he's delivered unto me, and I'm moved and motivated by his love. And so therefore, when Paul came among them, his behavior was in line it was aligned with his motivation he loved on them notice he calls himself or compares himself to a mother he uses the word gentle in verse 7 he says that we were gentle among you like a nursing mother you ever seen a nursing mother the way that they care for a young child you know i've had four of them now and i love babies you know why because they're like gumby They're unbreakable. You can tie them in a knot and they'll giggle and laugh, you know. You can put their feet behind their head and they look at you with these guys. And then you can pull their calf muscles back over their cheeks and they they, they get the sumo face and they giggle and they let, you know, and and, and it doesn't harm them. They're just, they're, they're, they're awesome, you know. But a mom will not do those things, you know. A dad will, you know, we hold them upside down, we woo, and they laugh, you know, and mom's like, oh, put them down, don't do that, you know. And Paul says that that's the way that we were among you. We were gentle among you. We didn't take advantage. We didn't twist you. We didn't push you. We weren't manipulating anything, trying to get you to be something or put on an appearance, but we were so gentle. We knew that your life was so fragile in the things of God, and so we were gentle among you. In verse 8, he implies that not only was he gentle, but they were also generous. 
He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also, listen, our own souls because you were dear unto us. Now, when's the last time you would not just preach to someone, but that you would lay down your very life and give them your very soul? In Romans, Paul spoke of the Jews, and he says, for I speak before the Lord, if I could go to hell so that the Jews could be saved, I would make that trade, such as my love for my countrymen. And I read those words, and I read what Paul says here, and it challenges me. I look at my own life, and I say, well, how far am I willing to go for someone else? How generous am I willing to be with my time or my energy or my resources? Paul says, we would have given you not just the gospel, but we were willing to give you our own souls, our generosity towards you. And then in verse 9, we were tireless. He says, you remember our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. So sensitive was the spiritual life there in Thessalonica. So precious, so endearing to Paul. So aware was Paul of what God was doing there in their midst that he wasn't willing to let them support him in his ministry, but he labored with his hands. Now, to the Philippians, he does say, thank you for the two offerings you sent me while I was in Thessalonica. So he he did have help, he was supported, but he was not willing to take anything from the Thessalonians, but just to give to them freely, to, to make them know that what God gives, he doesn't give with strings attached. God doesn't give because he says, well, I'll give to you so that you'll give back to me. And the church of Jesus Christ is never to be that. It's never to be where, well, okay, well, we feed you so you feed us. That doesn't negate the principle of Christian giving, but never is it to be the motivation of a church or a ministry to give so that we can get. Why? Because that's not the heart of God. He doesn't give to get. And Paul says, we gave we labored because we didn't want to be chargeable unto any of you in giving you this gospel of god and then he says in verse 10 he says you are witnesses and god also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe you are witnesses to the love that we demonstrated that was a demonstration of our motives that you can't see. But we proved it by the way that we behaved among you, even when we were in a season of affliction and adversity. It's interesting to me to consider the difference between a mother and a father. You know, you go to the hospital and you see baby, you know, delivered and and, and the family has an addition and it's an interesting dynamic that you observe there. Because... Always in that setting, you'll see a group of men standing outside, perhaps with a bunch of cigars or bubblegum cigars, if it's a Christian birth, you know, or something, that, that says it's a boy or it's a girl. And, and the dads are all standing outside and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're standing there like a rooster, all proud, and their heads are up. And they, and they go, yeah, look what I made. Chip off the old block. You know, isn't this great? And they're, you know, they're just jovial and celebrating, the dads. But the moms... They're inside, wounded, bloodied, you know, holding this brand new life. And inside, they're just sitting quietly looking at it and thinking to themselves, you know, we'll see what we got in about 20 years. 
After all the sleepless nights getting up with a crying baby and all the tears that are wiped away from the eyes and the hurts that they go through in life and a thousand band-aids that will cover skin knees and a thousand trips to the grocery store and 21,000 meals and late night talks about life and the meaning of it and all the things that go along with it. And boy, I sure hope he turns out okay after all of that. And you see, that's the way that Paul was towards the people that he led to Christ. It wasn't just that he prayed with them, gave them a Bible and said, hey, they're saved, now they're going. No, no, he was like, no, no, I want to see how you're going to turn out. I want to see what your life is going to look like after you've been doing this for five years, ten years. I want to see the gifts that God's put in you. I want to see the plan that he has for your life. I want to see the place where you fit into his body and see how it's real for you and, and how, you, how you develop and abound in the things of God and the knowledge of God. Paul was a mother, but he was also a father. Look at verse 11. He says, as you know how we exhorted, The word exhort means to encourage with strength and resolve. It means to light a fire under someone that perhaps needs to have a fire lit under them for the sake of motivation, getting them going. He says, you know also how we exhorted you and comforted you and uh, charged you as a father doth his children. Now, how does a father comfort Because a father comforts in a much different way than a mother. A mother comforts by cuddling. Dads, we do that when they're real little, but we don't do that after very long. You know, like Rocky, he's past the cuddle comfort stage. You know, eight years old, almost nine this month, you know. And and he's past that stage where comfort from dad comes from cuddling. How does a dad or a father comfort his son? It's not through cuddling, but it's through affirmation. It's through spending time with him. It's by letting him know, teaching, admonishing him, training him up in the way that he go. Give him a chance to be a man, you know. And and that's what Paul was among them too. He wasn't distanced. He wasn't removed, but he was an affirmer. He, he, He came to them and he said, hey, now God is with you. God is working in your life. God is for you. Now stand up and stand in the things of God. Take up the whole armor of God. So he was a comforter, but then he says also how we charged you. The word charge there means to require with firmness. Now, us dads, we know what that means, right? When we charge our sons, (laughs) you know, we do it in a much different way than the moms. Rocky, you know, (laughs) come on. And, And Paul wasn't afraid to do that. He cherished them. He was gentle among them. He was a mother among them. But yet at the same time, he wasn't afraid to maybe get a little firm if he needed to, talking to them, admonishing them, charging them as a father does his children. And then he tells us what it was that he charged them in verse 12. He says that you would walk worthy of God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed when I read that, but this is the fourth epistle in a row that Paul has said these words. He said it to the Philippians, No, I'm sorry, the Ephesians, and then he said it to the Philippians, and then he said it to the Colossians, and now he's saying it to the Thessalonians. Fourth time in four epistles that Paul has made this charge, that you would walk worthy of God. Now, what does it mean to walk worthy? It means to conduct yourself in a manner that brings worth to what you represent. 
The idea, again, is of that of a scale or a balance. And on one side, you're putting one substance. And on the other side, you're to put something of equal weight that will bring the balance into even. And what Paul is saying is that we're to walk worthy of God, which means that on one side of the scale, you're placing the character, the nature, the person, the gospel, the kingdom of God. And on the other side, you're placing your Christian life. And it's almost laughable to think that somehow my Christianity can bring worth to what God is and all that he represents. And in reality, it never can. But Paul says he's called you unto his kingdom and glory. Therefore, walk worthy of it. As much as is within you, let your life be a reflection of who he is. Let your conduct or your behavior bring value to the name that you represent. Don't take it lightly or in vain, so to speak. But walk worthy of God who has called us unto his kingdom and glory. Now, Paul has given us the three first components of this equation. The platform of adversity, the power of integrity, and then the persuasion of love. Why is he saying all of these things? Why is he talking about his behavior among them in these things? What's the purpose of him doing that? Is he just simply seeking to say, well, look how great I am. Look, look what I've done among you. No, that's not Paul's intention. He goes on, and here's what he's saying. He's saying that my loving behavior among you was proof that my message to you was legitimate and sincere. I proved the truth and the sincerity of what I said by the way that I was. So what was the result of this platform, this power, and this persuasion? The result is in verse 13, and that is a potent witness for God. He says, for this cause also, thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God, which you heard of us, You received it not as the word of men. You didn't just sit and listen to us speak and think, well, let's hear what these guys have to say. What's their philosophy? You didn't listen to it as though it was merely the words of men. But you were so moved by who we were and what we did while we were among you that when we spoke, you received the words that we spoke, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh, also and you that believe he's saying that because of what you saw in us and experienced while you were with us you were able to receive from us the fullness of what we came to give you i don't think that there's a more precious or more powerful substance in all of existence than the word of god the bible tells us that god spoke and things happened He said, light be, and light was. He said, let the dry land appear, and let the waters beneath be separated from the waters that are above. And he literally spoke all that we understand and know. He spoke it into existence with his very word, the powerful word of God that brings to pass what it says. Now, if God... And this is what Paul is saying, essentially, is that if God spoke this word, this Bible that you hold in your hand or that is laying in your lap, 
If this Bible is as it claims to be the very word of God himself, then that means two things. It means, first of all, that it is absolutely, undeniably true. That because God spoke it, and if God spoke it, that means every word of it is absolutely true and it can be relied upon. Now, if it is true and you can rely upon it, then you can believe it. And if you believe it, it's going to do the thing that it is set forth to accomplish within your life. That's what Paul says at the end of the verse. He says, this word of God that you received, which worketh effectually also in you that believe. The word of God is going to accomplish what God sets it forth to accomplish in your life. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. says that the word of God is quick or living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God is alive and powerful. To the prophet Isaiah, the Lord spoke, and he said this in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10. He says, For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but waters the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. The only thing it takes for the word of God to be fulfilled in your life is for you to believe it. And if he spoke it, then it's true. So if you believe the word, then the power of the word will be real in your life. What does the word accomplish? What does it mean when it says that it will accomplish that which I please and it will prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it? Well, first John. John tells us, these things I write unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. Well, if you're struggling with assurance that God has actually given you eternal life, you believe the word of God, read 1 John, because it was written that you might know you have eternal life. You're going to have assurance. God's going to work in your heart. He's going to build assurance in your life. You say, well, I lack wisdom. That's my problem, is I need a whole lot of wisdom for the path that I'm on. Well, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, it says, to understand wisdom. It tells you right there the very reason that God sent it, the very purpose that it exists for. Well, if you believe it, and then you read it, the Word of God is going to work effectually in you that believe, and God is going to write wisdom in your heart. You're going to become wise. You say, well, my struggle is faith. I, I lack faith. I need more faith. Well, the Gospel of John, it says, these things are written that you might believe. So read the book of John because it's going to accomplish the thing that God sent it to accomplish. Well, my struggle is sin. I have, a, I have a sin problem. I can't break free from these sins of my flesh. Again, 1 John, he writes, he says, These things I write unto you that you sin not. The word of God is going to accomplish the thing that God sent it to do. He's telling us what he's going to do. 
So read 1 John and believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do in your life. Nothing can stop the power of the word. Paul says, we thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And if you are a believer of the word of God, then the word of God is going to work effectually in you. And you're going to find your life being changed. Being made, recreated in the image of his son, conformed into the image of Jesus Christ himself. It's the work that God wants to do. Now, that is the secret of a successful ministry. Not the minister. Not the platform. Not even the integrity or the love. But it's the power of the word that changes a life. The problem is that in many circles, there's no integrity or behavior that would cause people to believe that the word that they're hearing is the word of God. And so Paul is saying to these people, listen, the platform of our affliction that we came to you underneath, and then the power of the integrity that we had, that what we were on the inside was the same thing that we represented on the outside. And then the persuasion of that integrity that we loved you with sincere love and we proved it by the way that we behaved ourselves while we were among you opened the door for you to believe that the word that we were speaking to you was the word of God and therefore you believed and the word took root in your life. The platform of affliction plus The power of integrity plus the persuasion of love equals a powerful and impacting witness. It was true for Paul, and it's true for us. Now, Paul is not writing so that they'll say how great he is. He's writing to explain to them the reason why they're going through the trouble they're going through. He's saying, listen, Tribulation, suffering, problems, it's par for the course if you're a Christian. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 14. He says, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, And have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. He's saying that for the Christian, for you there in Thessalonica, and for you that are here tonight listening to God's word. Paul would say to us, affliction, tribulation, persecution, distress, contention. It's par for the course for the Christian. Jesus said in John 16, he said, in this world you shall suffer tribulation. It's a given. In Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, Jesus speaking, he said that some of the seed fell upon rocks and when tribulation or persecution came into their life because of the word, they were stumbled. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses four, uh, 12 to 14, Peter writes and he says, Beloved, think it not strange. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. 
as though some strange thing has happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. It's constant. And it's par for the course for the Christian is that we are going to, if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we're going to be persecuted. We're going to go through seasons of affliction. But Paul is reminding them that, listen, the persecution, the affliction, the adversity that you're facing, it's not about you, first of all. God is using it to reach others. It is giving you an opportunity to shine. And also, it is an instrument of God working in your life to conform you into the image of his son. He concludes in verse, the last verses, 17 through 20, with the reward of the ministry. He says, but we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye, you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. The reward for Paul for being in the ministry, at least in earth and then later on in heaven, was not to please men or to obtain some financial gain, or to get something from it in a tangible way. And it wasn't to receive glory of men, to build a reputation or a name for himself. But the reward for Paul was the people that he got to know and lead to Christ, and the people that he would spend eternity with. They were precious to Paul. I talked to a lot of people that either have cancer, are related to someone with cancer, or have a family member or relative that's going through that kind of a thing. And in all of the conversations that I have, I find that there is one common thread among them all, and that is this, is that the only thing that matters to them, once they hear that word, or begin experiencing that problem, are the people in their lives. They don't care about their houses anymore, or how big it is, or what shape it's in. They don't care about their possessions or their cars or their careers or their goals or their retirement plans or their bank accounts or their hobbies or anything else. The only thing that matters once that strikes is where are my sons? Where are my daughters? Where are my parents? How are they with the Lord? And the only thing that matters then is the people. That's it. Because people is the only thing that you can take with you into the next life. You can't take anything else. And Paul got that. He understood it. He said, you are our crown, our rejoicing, our hope. In the presence of the Lord Jesus that is coming, you are our glory and our crown. It's you. Listen, Jesus said this. He said, what doth it profit if a man gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Now, if Jesus was right when he said that, then by implication, a single soul is worth more than every tangible atom in the entire existence. 
single soul. What's important to you? Paul says, I treasure the people in my life. Those are the ones that are life to me. That's what drives me. It moves me. As we close, how do we apply this? Because, you know, I was thinking, I'm not an apostle. I'm not a church planter. I'm certainly no Paul, you know. And I don't think most of the people that will be hearing the study tonight are engaged in full-time ministry like Paul. And, you know, in a great sense, what we just looked at was how to run a good ministry, you know. And I thought, Lord, what is it? What is it that you want to say tonight through this word to the people there? And here's what the Lord gave me for me and also for you, is that this word serves as three things for us. First of all, it serves as a mirror. Because we look at the the motivation that Paul had and the kind of heart that he had. And and I don't know about you, but when I look at this, and I had to study this, you know, and it was painful. It was as painful as looking in a mirror in the morning, you know. Really, because you look in the mirror in the morning and and you're like, oh, turn the lights off, you know, please. I don't want to see this, you know. And and that's what it was like. You're looking at this and he's like, I I didn't see glory of men. I wasn't doing it for this reason. I wasn't doing it for that reason. I'm so involved in people's lives, affectionately desirous, giving you my soul, you know, whatever. But let this word be for you a mirror that reveals your motives. Why do you do what you do, whether you're in ministry or not? for your employment, your vocation, what you do with your family, the plans that you have for your future. What is your motivation? Are you doing it to please men? People do things to please men. I want to be noticed. I want people to see that I've made something of myself. People do things for money. People do things for fame, for attention. Why do you do what you do? Listen, there's only one thing that will ultimately bring satisfaction to you in your life. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. There is only one thing in all of this life that will bring satisfaction to you, and that is to live to bring pleasure to the Lord. Let that be our motivation as we look in the word. God, change my heart. Help me. It's not only a mirror, but it's also a model to show us what God wants us to become, what he wants to make us as he works in our lives, the kind of people he would have us to be as we look. It shows us that we still have a long way to go, doesn't it? And it drives us to dependency upon him. And then finally, this word to us is a memo. It's a memo, like a post-it note that you would place upon the refrigerator. And here's what that memo is, that reminder. The affliction that you're going through. And how many people here, can I just ask you by show of hands, are going through some form of a trial right now? Some form of a difficulty. Something that's stressing you out, that's on your mind, that won't leave you alone. It's plaguing you. There's a lot of hands. Let this word be for you a reminder that your affliction, your trouble, your tribulation is not about you. It's not about you. I have a lot of unsaved family members in other parts of the state. And I'm not going to be the one that's going to reach them. I I just know that. I blew my witness a long time ago, you know, among them. And and they're not going to listen to me. I could be Jesus himself, and they're not going to listen to me, you know. But I pray for them, and here's what I pray. I pray, God, raise up people 
coworkers that will come alongside them and share with them. Let them come to know you in some way, Lord. Let them hear this message, this gospel. I pray for them that way. Listen, here's the point. The person you work with, the neighbor that you live by, someone is praying for them. And someone's praying for you, that you would be the instrument in their life to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it just might be that the trial you're facing, the affliction you're going through, is for you a platform on which you can be an example of Christian character to them they're watching that they might come to a saving knowledge of God as well. It's not about you. It's not about me. So let this word be a memo to us. Those things that we go through, that we complain about, it's an opportunity for us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Thank you for your patience. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us so clearly and that you help us, Lord, that you give us the truth and we know that your word is effectual and able to accomplish what you sent it to do. And so, Father, we commit our lives to you afresh. We pray that you would have your way in us and through us and that we might be those witnesses. Give us a love for people, a supernatural love for people. We pray you'd help us. I pray you'd go with each one here. I pray for those that are suffering here tonight, that are going through that furnace of affliction. I pray that you'd use them, Lord, that they would be comforted in their affliction and that they'd be fruitful in this season. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.